Please rise for the reading of God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, and not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please keep them open to John chapter 13 as we begin our time in his word together this morning in prayer. God, we ask that as we open your word together, that as we seek your face and desire to hear your voice, uh, Lord, that you would be present among us, that you would do your work in us, that you would open our eyes to see you and our ears to hear your voice, and that you would draw our hearts to you in humble affection and gratitude for the love and mercy that you've shown us. God, be with us this morning. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. In the beginning of the famous French novel, Les Miserables, we're introduced to the character, the main character, Jean Valjean, a convict who has been recently released and is struggling to survive. He comes across a bishop who is the only person who is willing to show him any kindness whatsoever. And the bishop offers him a place to stay and a hot meal and to be the only person who shows him any decency. Jean Valjean is shocked by the kindness of this man because as a convict, most people viewed him only with contempt. But he is welcomed into the home of this kind stranger, 
But during the night, Jean Valjean was overcome by old habits, and he stole some silver plates from the bishop before fleeing into the night. By morning, he was caught, and the police brought him back to the bishop so that he can testify against this thief, condemning him back to the prison that he had just come from. But the bishop instead says to the man who had just robbed him, I am so glad to see you. I gave you the candlesticks also. Why did you not take them along with your plates? The police are obviously surprised. Uh, The bishop's assistant who is present is also surprised. But no one is more surprised, more shocked, than Jean Valjean himself. And the passage reads, reads, He was trembling in every limb as the bishop leaned in to say, Jean Valjean, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul I am buying for you. I draw it back from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. It's a moment that sets Jean Valjean's life from that moment forward on an entirely different trajectory. Having been shown such kindness and such grace and such humility in the face of his own pride and flaws, he is a changed man. Because true grace, humble and sacrificial love, produces fruit in the lives of those who, knowing their guilt, are shocked to see it and who receive it with simple faith. Over and over again in his ministry, Jesus subverted the expectations of those around him. He consistently surprised and angered Jewish leaders who were threatened by his command of Scripture, his growing following, and by his teaching, which challenged much of their own. He regularly surprised the crowds that followed him who expected certain behavior from someone that they looked to as a rescuer. And perhaps most interestingly, he often surprised those who were closest to him, his disciples, those who knew him best and yet are constantly confused and shocked and dismayed by their teacher and leader. In the centuries that the Jewish people had been awaiting the Savior who was promised by God, they had built up expectations of what that Savior would look like and how he would act and how he would save them. Jesus is not what they were expecting. Even for those who were closest to him, though, it was difficult to let let go of centuries of anticipation to understand just what sort of Savior Jesus really was and how he would accomplish salvation. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus aims to correct them, to correct their misunderstanding and their wrong expectations by illustrating how he came to save and both the necessity and exemplary nature of his grace. It begins as Jesus and his disciples prepare for the feast of the Passover, as John tells us in chapter 13, verse 1. And Jesus knows, as they prepare for this meal, that his hour had come to depart out of this world. He knows that within just a few hours, he will be arrested and tried and crucified. It can be easy to miss that this is the night of Jesus' arrest, because he won't actually be arrested for five more chapters in the book of John. But this scene, here in chapter 13, takes place just hours before he is arrested, on the last night Before his death. These chapters record the last conversation that he'll have with his disciples and the last meal that he'll share with them before he is crucified. So there is a certain weight placed on the events of these chapters, just like there would be for you 
if you knew that your life were going to end tomorrow? If for some reason you did know that today was your last day, you would approach it with some thoughtfulness about how you would use it. You would carefully choose how to spend your last day. You would think about who you wanted to spend that time with. You would decide, perhaps you would agonize over what meal you would want to share with them. I'm not sure exactly how you would handle it, but I know that it would not be careless. Maybe you'd pull out all the stops. You'd do something from your bucket list, something you've always wanted to do but never got around to. Maybe, since it's your last day, you'd do something extravagant with your time. That is not what Jesus does. Jesus knows what is going to happen over the next few hours. So we should pay attention to how he decides to spend his final night and who he spends it with and what he says to them. It is the night he's been anticipating throughout his entire life and ministry, and it is here. It is the hour, as John says, when Jesus knows that he will depart out of this world to the Father. That is Jesus' destination, to sit at the right hand of the Father in glory, but it will not be a straight road that leads there. Interestingly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record this scene in their accounts of Jesus' life. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, don't, don't panic. This is a tickle in my throat. <clears> throat. In those accounts, in Matthew and Mark and Luke's accounts of this night, of Jesus' ministry, this gathering is significant for another reason. At this same meal, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, teaching his disciples to receive the bread and the cup as they receive his broken body and spilled blood by faith. But here in John, different features of that gathering are given attention. That could be because, as many scholars think, by the time that John was organizing his account of Jesus' life into the book of John, uh, the Lord's Supper, or communion, had been misunderstood by many people. Early in the church's history, some teaching, some were teaching that the bread and the cup were sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card, that as long as you received the bread and the cup, that you had a ticket to heaven, and that was all you needed. Uh, John, many scholars think, did not want to perpetuate that misunderstanding, and so he chose instead to demonstrate by recording Jesus' actions in this scene a right understanding of what Jesus had done and how we are saved. John foreshadows that in the end of verse 1 when he says that having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. Jesus knows that his hour has come. He knows the path that lies ahead of him, and he knows where it will lead. And in love for his own, he will walk it to its very end. Clearly, something significant is about to take place. So far in this book, we've seen Jesus do the impossible. We've seen his divine authority and his power to carry out his will. John reminds us of Jesus' divinity and the forces opposing him right here in the opening of this chapter, when we read in verse 2 that during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. The stage is set for a confrontation. The devil is making his moves, preparing for a strike against Jesus and the kingdom of God, and Jesus knows this. He has known Judas's heart from the very beginning, known that Judas would fall to the temptation of selfishness and greed. 
We learned way back in chapter 6 that Jesus has known that Judas would betray him all along. And now the night has come. The devil is making his move, and Jesus knows it. And he also knows that all things are in his hands, that he has all authority and all dominion. John has set the scene for us in a way that builds up our expectations. So when we see Jesus rise from the table, we're expecting exactly what the disciples expected, to to see Jesus act decisively, to wield his authority, to crush the opponents of the kingdom, and to claim his rightful throne over that kingdom. But that is not, that is not what Jesus does. Instead, we see exactly how Jesus intends to use that power. We see exactly what he intends to communicate in his last night before his arrest and crucifixion. We see exactly how he will wield his authority. John tells us, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. It is a powerful overturning of our expectations. Jesus' demonstration of humility in this passage is the opposite of what we anticipate. Because the natural human tendency is to achieve status in order to be served by other people. Our social structure is a hierarchy. It says that those above are served by those who are below, that one of life's goals is to climb through those ranks so that there are fewer and fewer people above you and more and more and more people below you. It is to rise through those ranks so that you don't have to do the menial or lowly work that you used to anymore which foot washing washing certainly was. So someone with a divine identity who commands authority over heaven and earth, as we've seen Jesus do in this book, is by his nature and status above this type of thing. It's like a four-star general shining the shoes of a new recruit. In the ancient world, where everyone wore sandals and spent time around livestock and went everywhere on foot, it's not hard for us to understand why this was an unpleasant chore. In fact, it was seen in in ancient times as such a demeaning task that official rabbinical teaching from this time period stipulated that Jewish servants should not be, could not be required to wash the feet of their superiors. Instead, it was reserved for foreign servants and those who were considered less respectable. Cultural tradition understood that this was such a humiliating, though necessary task, that it could only be required of those with essentially no reputation or status to protect from such shame. Yet it is Jesus who humbly serves the disciples in this way. Jesus, who has authority over all things, who is divine and who is going back to his Father's side, has a status that entitles him to more honor than any person who has ever lived Yet he is, the, he is the only one who is worthy to be served by literally everyone else, yet he is willing to serve. But Jesus demonstrates to us in this passage that his love is both humble and sacrificial. Two things intensify our understanding of how true that statement really is. First, as we've seen, 
Jesus is the king of glory. So for him to serve like this is a drastic and humbling departure from his rightful place. Jesus is the king, the son of God, who, as Colossians 1 describes him, in whom and for whom all things have been made and in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Secondly, though, is that Jesus is serving people who, by every measure, do not deserve it. Bearing in mind that Jesus is the king of glory, the sheer flawed humanity of the disciples in all of its ugliness comes into clearer view. They are far from perfect. Later this very night, Peter will deny that he even knows Jesus. The rest will abandon him from the mob. They will flee from the mob who is cheering for Jesus's execution. And Judas will shortly leave this meal to sell Jesus's life for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus knows all of that already. Yet he still humbles himself to love them. He is like the general, the four-star general who shines the shoes, not only of a new recruit, but the new recruit, the new recruit who just cost his country the battle. His humility and willingness to sacrifice go beyond our capacity to truly wrap our minds around. According to Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Rather than demanding the honor which he was entitled to receive because of his divinity, his holiness, or his status as their leader and their rabbi, Jesus steps further down in humility than it is possible for us to truly comprehend. This is the love of Christ for them and for us. This is the king of kings who stepped off of his throne to become a servant. While we were God's enemies, Christ humbled himself for our sake. When we chose our way rather than his, when we dishonored his glory, demeaned his holiness, when we demanded that he meet our expectations, when he knew that we would fail, he humbled himself for us. This is Christ's love for you. It is sobering. It is sobering to think about every mistake you've ever made. To come to terms with the fact that each of our sinful moments is truly an act of treason against a holy God. To remember things that you wish you could forget that have left marks on our relationships with people we love and scars on our hearts, to consider our failures, big and small, in our lives as we look back on them with shame. It is sobering to reflect on those things and humbling to remember that Jesus knew them all. He knew them all. And the king of the universe kneels with a basin of water and a towel wrapped around his waist to wash our feet anyway. He knew them all, and he endured the cross for us anyway. He is like a bishop that we have robbed, who has shown us kindness and we have robbed him in the night, who says to us, you forgot to take the candlesticks with you too. We tremble to hear him say it because whether it's deep down or in our every waking moment, we know that we deserve his scorn and to feel his justice. Yet he kneels 
with his basin and his towel. And still, though we stumble and we fail to honor him every day, just as the disciples did and would continue to do, he humbles himself to love us. The humble and sacrificial love of Christ that we see displayed in this passage is for each of us just as much as it was for these disciples. It is the heart of the gospel and the reason that Christ stepped off of his throne, the throne of glory, to dwell among his people, to live a flawless life, and to die at our hands. Because the humble and sacrificial love of Christ is necessary for salvation. As Jesus made his way around the room, I'm sure the awkwardness was considerable. Nobody acted the way that Jesus was acting. It would be like having the President of the United States over to your house for dinner, only to have him silently get up from the table and go and start cleaning the bathroom. In that situation, you would not know exactly how to react, because it's such a bizarre and surprising turn of events that there is no preparing for it. There is no anticipating how you would react or what the right response to that behavior would be. The disciples don't know what to say, and evidently nobody said anything until Jesus came to Peter. Peter is the disciple who consistently puts his foot in his mouth. He often speaks without fully thinking about what he's saying, so I have always felt a certain kinship with him. And when Peter turns to Jesus as he arrives with his basin of water and his towel, Peter asks, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's incredulous. This shouldn't be. And Peter knows it. He knows that he should be the one washing Jesus' feet. But Peter knows, uh, Jesus rather, knows that Peter does not yet grasp what is happening. So he says in verse 7, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. There will come a time, Peter, when you look back on this moment and you grasp the humble and the sacrificial love that I am showing you, and that it is the very heart of my mission. But right now, Peter doesn't understand what's happening at all. So he says, you shall never wash my feet. The language in the Greek here is emphatic. Never, ever will you wash my feet. It is a strong statement. Peter is recoiling at the shame and disgrace that Jesus is enduring. And on the surface, it is Peter's humility that is motivating him. He cannot stand to see Jesus in such a humiliating situation. But underneath is Peter's prideful assumption that he knows a better way, that his way is better for him and for Jesus himself. So Jesus stops. He stops what he's doing to address Peter. It says, bluntly but with love, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If you do not receive my humble and my sacrificial love, then you are not one of my own. It is an equally strong reply to Peter's strong refusal. Jesus knows that they won't understand everything now. He knows that the disciples will not understand everything now, but he wants them to grasp at least one thing, that the only way to belong to him is his way, not ours. There can be no relationship between Peter and Jesus without Jesus' humble love and Peter's reception of it. Jesus knew what Peter could not possibly understand yet, and yet in love he says, this is how it must be. 
When Jesus says, you shall have no share with me, he's using the language of inheritance. He's talking about being brought into his family and given the status as children of God. That cannot happen without the cleansing that comes from Christ in which he steps down off of his throne for the sake of his love. Though he is the glorious and eternal son of the Father, Jesus' love for his own is so complete that he who made the world and holds it together humbles himself to take the form of a servant for their sake. Peter thinks at this point, he understands the degree to which Jesus is willing to step off of his throne, and he is shocked by it. But Jesus' willingness to wash the feet of his disciples is not half as shocking as what he is preparing to do. Peter's desire is to honor Jesus, to spare him the shame of this scene. It is an admirable desire. But if it is not corrected, it will prevent him from understanding Jesus' humble and sacrificial love, which is necessary for him to be saved. Because he is misunderstanding Jesus' mission. He does not yet understand that it is by Jesus' humility and sacrifice that salvation will be accomplished, that his failures and sin and wickedness will be atoned for and forgiven. So Jesus wanted Peter and the other disciples and us to grasp, first and foremost, that the heart of the gospel is Jesus' willingness to step down from glory and into the shame and humiliation of the crucifixion for our salvation. This is the way. No one is saved by their effort to honor God or to do right or to uphold his glory, even if those are right things to pursue. No one is redeemed by their willingness to live a godly life, to obey God's commands or to avoid sin, because the corruption of sin has already worked its way through our lives and through our minds and through our hearts. There is already a debt already unholiness to atone for, and already the uncleanness from sin that must be dealt with. It's a problem that we cannot solve on our own, neither could Peter, because on our own, we can only try to cleanse sin from our lives with the effort of sinful hearts. It's like trying to wash your laundry in a mud puddle. It isn't going to get clean, no matter how hard you try, because you're trying to get something clean with something that is unclean. So Jesus says to Peter, without the cleansing that I humbly provide, you have no share with me. And Peter, to his credit, swings hard in the opposite direction. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. <laughs> Confronted with the strong the strong words of Jesus, Peter immediately let go of his refusal to accept Jesus' humble service. Though his words reveal when he says, you know, not my hands, not, not my, my feet only, but also my hands and my head, his words reveal that he still does not understand what Jesus is doing. So Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. This is a difficult verse for me to understand for a long time. But Jesus is using the common knowledge of the day to make his point. For people in the first century, foot washing was a regular part of life because it was the part of hygiene that required the most daily attention for reasons I think are pretty obvious. 
So Jesus tells Peter, you don't need me to wash your hands or your head. You are already clean. But your feet, those are going to need to be washed every single day. And of course, Jesus isn't merely talking about the dust that needed to be washed away. When he told Peter, unless I cleanse you, you have no share with me, he was talking about something much more difficult to wash away. Jesus is, of course, talking about sin and its corrupting, contaminating effects. So what are we to make of the, this, this conversation about bathing? And how does Jesus' response to Peter's confusion shape our own understanding of how Jesus deals with our sin? Well, first, we know that it is Jesus' humble and sacrificial love that provides the cleansing that we need. His pure and perfect life is counted as ours when we put our faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us, that he who knew no sin at all became sin for us. He took the mantle and guilt of sin upon himself so that we might become the righteousness of God. He cleanses our sin and washes it away by exchanging his life for ours, our guilt for his righteousness and our shame for his honor. He is the king who becomes a servant, who bears the burden of our contamination, the lowest and the most humble, who gives his own life to make ours clean. And so he tells Peter, you are clean. Though the work of salvation is yet to be finished, Peter is yet to deny Jesus and then repent and return to his Savior. Jesus knows, just as he knows Judas's heart, he knows Peter's, and he knows that Peter is his own. And so he says to him, you are clean, you are mine. But Jesus' illustration doesn't end there. Even though Peter is already clean, his feet still need to be washed. Scholars generally agree that what Jesus is getting at here is the daily need to turn to Jesus for cleansing. The Christian is made righteous by Christ himself, and daily we turn toward Christ in faith that his humble and sacrificial love is sufficient. Every day we fight the urge to go our own way, to wash ourselves clean like Peter wanted to do, to make our own path. And instead, to, to receive the cleansing that can only come from Christ. And every day, we say that his life in our place is enough. We put our trust in it and receive the grace that God has poured out in the perfect life, life and atoning death of his Son. That is the cleansing made possible by and accomplished by Christ. And knowing Peter was his, he counted him clean already. Just as we are counted clean when the rest of our lives will have plenty of our stumbling and sin. So Peter is counted clean, but not everyone in the room was. You are clean, Jesus tells Peter in verse 10, but not every one of you. He said this, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. As Jesus speaks these words, Judas is pre preparing Judas is preparing to go in search of someone who willing to trade money for Jesus' life. And that detail shapes our understanding of what Jesus says next. Judas displays the opposite of what Christ's love produces in us when we receive it by faith, because Christ calls us to imitate his humble and sacrificial love. He explains to his disciples in verse 13 that they are right to call him teacher and Lord. They are right to wonder at the fact that their teacher and Lord has become their servant. And they are right to glorify him as the one who is willingly 
willingly uh, going to step off of his throne and give up his rights to bless them. And when they see him on the cross, they will be right to praise him as the divine son of God who stepped off of his eternal throne to serve a wicked and wayward people by dying for them. And that observation should lead them to follow in his footsteps. Because the humble and sacrificial love of Christ produces or bears the fruit of humble and sacrificial love among his people. So he says to them, If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. The longer we think about this, the longer we think about Jesus' instruction in this passage, the more humbling this calling will become. Jesus isn't just talking about being friendly or about showing kindness to one another. He's talking about the sort of humble love that is willing to sacrifice status and personal gain or advantage for the sake of others. The disciples were stunned at Jesus' humility in this moment. And Jesus teaches them that their humility ought to leave people speechless just like his did. Truly, truly, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. A Christ follower should not expect greater honor than the one we follow. And the one we follow laid his honor aside to win the salvation of his people. So that means leveraging our status to serve others, sacrificing our rights to love with humility. For some, that will look like selling houses and cars and furniture and leaving jobs and family to go and live in some faraway country to preach the gospel, to serve the needs of the poor, and to love across cultures. For others, it will look like being willing to live with less in order to help others get by. It looks like standing for truth in your workplace, even if it might cost you a promotion, or choosing to live and work in neighborhoods that others just want to get away from. It means giving up what we used to treasure because in Christ we have a greater prize, the one who humbled himself for us. If we look back at Philippians 2, we see that that is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the church there about Jesus' humility. He encouraged the believers in that, in that church to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count each other's more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus' love is the pattern, the template for a Christian life. It is the thing that saves us and the thing that we are saved to express with our lives. This is how God is at work in the world. It is how he has chosen to give himself to the world, as Jesus says in verse 20. He has chosen to do it chiefly through his church, through the transformed lives of those who have received Christ and the one who sent him. The reformer Martin Luther once commented that we receive God's daily blessings and provision through the people that he appoints to be a conduit of his care. He could easily give you grain and fruit without plowing and planting, he says, but he does not wish to do things this way. Instead, he provides our daily bread through the people who plow and plant. 
He could miraculously heal our physical ailments, but chooses more often to provide for our needs through people like doctors and nurses. He could instantly bring knowledge into our minds, but chooses more often to do that work through the skills and the dedication of parents and teachers. And he could miraculously cause people all over the world to wake up tomorrow with faith and hope in the gospel, but chooses to do that work, the work of sharing the humble and sacrificial love of his son through the people who know what it means for the king of kings to have become a servant for their sake. People like Peter and people like you and me. Likewise, John, later in his life when he wrote the book of 1 John, encouraged Christians to remember that God's love for us in Christ is our salvation in life, and it is also the foundation of our character. He explained that we understand that love is not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, John says, if God so loved, meaning in this way, as a propitiation, in humility and with sacrifice, if God loved us, so we also ought to love one another. We ought to love one another in this same way, with this same humble and sacrificial affection, the same love that he has shown us. And we have seen, and as we have seen in 1 John and Philippians and here in John 13, that love is proactive. God doesn't wait for us to move toward him. He moves toward us. He stands from the table. He puts on the uniform of a servant and comes to meet us in our need. He came to us, and now he's sending us into the world to others with the same initiative, the same humility, and the same sacrificial love. Jesus drives this point home by focusing on Judas as the scene comes to a close. Three times in this short section, Judas's betrayal is mentioned. It's not subtle. All along, Jesus has known that Judas would betray him. From the moment he called Judas to follow him, he has known. And now he reminds his disciples that one of them is not cleansed, that he will betray Jesus. He tells them. He tells them this so that later on, after the dust is settled, they will remember it. And they will know that all along, Jesus' plan, his intent, has been to walk this path of humble sacrificial love. He does not want them to think that he was ambushed. This is the plan. And Jesus has walked into it knowing exactly what it would cost him to do it. Because evidently there is no bottom to Jesus's humility. He even serves those who, who he knows will turn against him. He demonstrates the degree to which he means it when he says, love your enemies. Not just put up with them, but sacrifice your status and your rights for them. That is the humble and sacrificial love of our servant king. Knowing what it will cost, knowing that it will demand everything, he gives everything. Seeing Jesus' humility in this passage is intimidating when we consider that, we've been, that we have been called, commanded to follow his example. But remembering that we have been loved, that we have been so loved, we are able to do it. No matter how far down we feel we are called to go in humility, we remember that Christ went further to love us. No matter how much we are called to sacrifice, we remember that he gave more to save us. 
The humble and sacrificial love of Christ will never not be shocking. It defies expectations. It brings us to our knees in worship because we know all too well how little we deserve it. But this is our king, the servant king who kneels to pour out his humble and sacrificial love as he loves us to the very end. Let's pray. God, as we, as we reflect on the gospel, the humility and sacrificial love of your Son for us that made the gospel possible and true, we ask that you would humble us, that you would help us to truly face our need for your forgiveness, for your grace and your love. Let us joyfully receive the humble and sacrificial love that has been poured out for us, and Lord, make us today into the likeness of your Son, who loved even when it cost him dearly to do so. Glorify yourself in our lives as you make yourself known through your church. God, we ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen.